According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again introducing Philippians tonight. So Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, although we're not quite into the exposition of the, the text itself, we're still doing some background. Not to be confused with the ten classes we had on the uh, prison epistle preview. That was a general a survey of Acts and the Pauline epistles and helped to establish a setting for all the pastoral, all the prison epistles for Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Uh, so we've completed that and now we're actually in the study of Philippians proper uh, doing uh, just the short introduction necessary to this particular book study. Before we begin tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together tonight. We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, set aside distractions, equip us with your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we get started, we want to take a few minutes for Q&A and questions. Is there a microphone ready to be run around? There it is. All right. And uh, since you have the microphone, do you want the first question? <laughs> or not. All right. became our practice some time back just to take about 10 minutes or so at the start of Wednesday night to take any questions or answer things maybe that were confusing on Sunday or anything that uh, you heard on the radio or you read in a book or a co-worker was telling you about and didn't make any sense, <laughs> things like that. We uh, don't promise answers, but uh, we can uh, pray about it and get back to you next week with, uh, with some research in the meantime. So, All right, we have a question on the far left. Sometimes those are the best questions that come from the far left. This is going to sound kind of basic, but uh, coming out here tonight, um, listening to the radio, a uh, commentator was saying uh, about you know, commenting on how uh, Christians who, you know, homosexuals who call themselves Christians can validate that. And it doesn't make any sense to me how they can, but uh, can you offer a perspective on how a uh, homosexual or a actually any deviant can mm -hmm. uh, justify being a Christian and still, you know, um, continue with their sin? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question because it happens a lot. Absolutely, it happens a lot. And I think it's it's a basic feature of what we do as sinners when we find excuses to justify what we want to do in the first place. And so typically there's going to be an ignoring of Scripture or a rewriting of Scripture, a reinterpretation of Scripture. Uh, they will attempt to dismiss much of the Bible as being irrelevant, as being expired, as being uh, old-fashioned or part of the ancient world, but it needs to be updated for our modern times. Uh, consistently uh, you'll have again and again and again those kind of things that are done. When they do take the time to maybe point to a text, they twist and damage it so many things. You know, they'll point to, uh, there's a verse where David talks about his, his love for Jonathan. 
and they'll point to that and say, see, there's a, there's a homosexual example. Or uh, the Apostle John reclining on Jesus' bosom. And, and they just have some horrible, horrible things that they point to that make your stomach want to retch in, in different things. And so um, they also like to remove Leviticus. They, they think they, they've got this great trump card that if you eat pork, uh, then somehow you've, you, you've uh, removed Leviticus from your Bible. And, and since the dietary restrictions are updated now in the church age, then just throw Leviticus out. And, and they act as if Leviticus is the only place in the Bible that, that condemns homosexuality. Uh, but th- so they think that if they can throw out Leviticus and get that, it's almost like lawyers in court. You know, if we can get a book of the Bible inadmissible or thrown out of court, then it's not part of the evidence against them. But, uh, you know, there's plenty of other passages besides Leviticus as well. But those are the kind of things that they do. And, and none of them are legitimate. And they're all um, what we call special pleading. Uh, if if you are simply uh, making an argument and, and the only reason to, to, to hold that view is to prove the, the case you're trying to make up front, then you're just practicing, you know, circular reasoning to start with. So there's there's nothing valid in any of that. Make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. We'll come across the aisle then, and then to the far right after that, we'll work our way to the right. Yes, ma'am. Exodus 37 and 39. That's Exodus chapter 30, verse 7? Yes. And verse 9. Okay. Okay. Seven's more just a frame of reference. In nine, it says you shall not offer any strange incense. What is strange incense? Anything that Cedar, God... Cedar, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> strange in the sense of foreign, the sense of not natural, in the sense of there's also strange women. Yeah, okay, there's also strange incense, there's strange fire, there's strange... Uh, it's kind of fun to see all the nouns that are attached to the adjective strange. Um, and what makes it strange is that it's foreign, it's alien, it's not commanded. And so Nadab and Abihu were guilty of this. Uh, Aaron's two sons, when they brought their strange fire before the Lord, and they died the sin and the death right there on the spot. So it's any of the, I think there were four things that were identified. Hyssop and two or three others, if I'm saying it correctly or mm-hmm. referring to it correctly. That's the incense that Aaron's burning in verse 7. Right. And then yeah. it, they had they, legitimate anything incense. else is well mm-hmm. is it related to incense was there a particular incense that was burned to idols i mean that the canaanites burned or you know that uh, is it strange that way or is it just not according to the recipe as it were <laughs> both i think and and uh, you, i'm boy you're stirring up some memories from years and years and years ago uh you know a lot of cultures um Modern and pagan and ancient, they 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 smoke some interesting things that that um, bring about some altered states, and uh, some of that was even in the ancient world too. And uh, I'm trying to think now where I read that. This is, goes back a long, long time related to that. But there are certain uh, smells and aromas that go with the pagan sacrifices, that go with the fertility rites, that go with also the cakes that get baked. We saw the cakes to the Queen of Heaven recently um, but ultimately too the reason why it's such a big deal is not because it's the wrong recipe or it smells different i mean if you like cinnamon or you like frankincense or you like whatever um, the point is though is that 
altar of incense is the Lord's procedure for entering within the veil, for entering into the Holy of Holies. And you can't just do that any old way you want to. That has to be done with the procedures, with the, the process in the, in the manner prescribed. And only the high priest, and only one day a year does he go into the Holy of Holies. So something that insults the idea of that altar of incense is going to be very offensive to, to the holiness of God. May I have a second question? Yes, ma'am. You can tell where I've been reading in the Bible, can't you? Exodus thirteen fifteen. Okay. Now I know it says there were firstborn. If it was, is it just firstborn men that were killed of the Egyptians, or was it if it was a female, she was killed? Firstborn son. Yeah, firstborn son. Mm-hmm. Same with the animals? Because mm-hmm. girls don't count. They're not important, and who cares? I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Everyone here in class, all right, we need to come across the aisle here to Warren gets our next question. Yeah, well, that, that verse does not, but the other verses do. Oh, the males, okay, there it is. The first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. It's remarkable, too, how a a male opens the womb. And you would think, well, does not a female open the womb? If your oldest child is a daughter, does, not, does that not open the womb? Uh, what's the difference if there's a male in the womb kind of a thing? It's, it's curious. And there's some actually some medical science that addresses some of that that tweaks my curiosity from time to time. But, all right, Warren. If a homosexual makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. would that not validate that he is a believer? Oh, yeah. Anybody that, that places their faith in Christ receives eternal life. No then this what uh, sinful are. activity of the believing homosexual would be his yielding to some area of weakness, an, an area of weakness of other, or one or another of them. Right, you're right, and then the prolonged lifestyle that is characterized well, it, by that becomes right. But you have other area, you have many areas of weakness, dozens in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't would um, do we think that um, homosexuality is uh, more evil than the other areas of weakness, such as the sins of the tongue or uh, those sorts of things? Only so far as where the scripture calls them an abomination and actually describes them as defiling the person, defiling the land, defiling the the nation. And so that does create a classification of sin that has a distinction from other classifications of sin. Also, um, gossip and sins of the tongue and so forth, they, they tend to not produce lifestyles where people saturate their thinking and saturate their day-to-day living in that and so um, so you don't find that the person is is celebrating gossip pride and marching in parades and living a, a gossip lifestyle um, necessarily like you do with a homosexual lifestyle and the and the slavery there also first Corinthians six speaks to the sin against the flesh that all fornication not just uh, homosexual but all fornication is a sin against the flesh and actually has a defilement of flesh and spirit so I think that abomination terminology sets it apart separate from other sins so, excellent question appreciate that all right y'all came prepared tonight appreciate it other questions what else do we have anything 
Going once, going twice. All right, across the aisle again, this time to the far right. There you go. Going back to the very sins of the flesh, mm-hmm. um, some of the things I've been seeing on the news and knowing that we're in spiritual well warfare, do you think perhaps part of the, of what we're seeing in our current history is the unleashing of a spirit of confusion on this land? Because to me, it's terribly confused not to know if you're a man or a woman or how it functions. Oh, there's no question. Yeah, there's no question that, that we are under a, a spirit, I guess you could say that. You know, uh, the Second Thessalonians talks about God sending a, a strong delusion upon the whole world. Um, under that concept, then, could could it be that, that God would send a more limited type of confusion, uh, a delusion? Does he give over a city? Does he give over a nation? Does he give over a people group? I think so. I think uh, even back to Genesis, we learned that the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. But when their iniquity is complete and God gives them over, uh, when the land vomits them out, see, bloodshed and fornication defile the land. And so, and we have plenty of that in our nation, okay? So we are defiling our own real estate. And it reaches a point spiritually this is the real environmental impact, okay? It's the environmental impact of sin. Believers who should be living better that are defiling their land. And it reaches a point that the land will vomit its inhabitants out. And that land will be provided a rest when God assigns new inhabitants to be the, the stewards of that land. And so um, I, I believe that's exactly what happened on this continent. I believe that the the pagans on this continent before the arrival of Christianity were cannibals. They were uh, blood uh, uh, sacrifice, virgin sacrifice. They, uh, they they practiced slavery. They did a lot of things, and I believe that the land vomited them out, and that this land was then given to the to the Europeans that came and colonized. And that's Acts 17, and that's Deuteronomy 30, and that's a lot of other passages that talk about human sin defiling the land. So there's no question we're under judgment. We've been under judgment for some time. We have how many generations now since the the, the sexual revolution that has just brought brought us into this realm of debauchery? I would just add a footnote. It's interesting. These last seven years of severe drought in California, now they're flooded like crazy. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I'm a little bit, I don't like to do newspaper exegesis, but... Um, it is it is interesting to observe uh, storms and, and floods and collapsing dams and you know different things. But when you do find things that are consistent with Leviticus 26 and the cycles of discipline, you can't help but take notice and say, obviously, uh, these kind of judgments don't don't hit a nation under God's favor. They hit a nation under God's wrath, and that's uh, that's the application there. All right, Casey. Um, on that same subject. Uh, despite their many problems with teaching on Jesus Christ, the Islamic culture has a high uh, standard for uh, sexual morality and family structure and and things like that. Though they slaughter innocents, there's certainly bloodshed. But the the book itself, as I read it, exalts marriage, as the Bible does, and gives them some kind of moral advantage in that regard, does it not? Only, well, 
only so far as the women are concerned. It's a very one-sided thing. Yeah. The men are, are still a lot of fornicators, but uh, the women uh, have a very strict control factor that's over them related to that. And, and, and then in terms of their uh, lex talionis, the eye for an eye justice and some of the other things, it, it's, it's a ripoff from the, from the scriptures, ripoff from the Old Testament. And so uh, you might expect uh, that kind of thing too. But Mormonism is, is moral. It's still demonic. Uh, the Quran is moral, but it's still demonic, and uh, and so we don't we don't want to confuse uh, uh, as we talked about in Proverbs 10 and Proverbs 11. We don't want to confuse a, an artificial morality with anything that God would be well pleased with. So that's is it something that would cause the land to vomit them up though? If they're oh yeah yeah the bloodshed absolutely would and the fornication absolutely would yeah especially if you have all that tribal warfare where it's vengeance and blood for blood and eye for eye, and that's a lot of innocent blood that gets shed. And, and uh, trust me, God the Father has a vested interest in magnifying innocent blood because it's innocent blood that redeemed us. <laughs> okay, So anytime innocent blood is, is shed in, in a way that, that just insults God the Father and God the Son and what he accomplished at Calvary, uh, that's gonna that's gonna have an impact on uh, on that nation, and uh, you know I think of the 38 million abortions since 1973. What are we doing? You know, so praying for that too. All right, well I appreciate those. If I didn't get to your question, then uh, try to raise your hand faster next week. We'll uh, we'll get to that. Or if you can't wait an entire week, shoot me an email, and uh, we can answer questions by email as well. Uh, our introduction to Philippians has left us off with uh, point six and seven. I want to get right back to that tonight and uh, lead with the conclusion under point nine and then introduce the two dominant themes of the book under points 10 and 11. So if you're keeping the outline then for the introduction to the book uh, written by Paul and Timothy, uh, one of the several epistles where Timothy is a co-author, co-author with uh, uh, in just the prison epistles, right? A co-author with Philippians, with Colossians, with Philemon. But why not Ephesians? Why is Timothy left out as a co-author of Ephesians? What sets Ephesians apart, especially since it's so parallel with Colossians? Why is Timothy not a co-author in Ephesians? Uh, likewise, uh, he's a co-author in Second Corinthians, but not First Corinthians. Why is that? He's not a co-author in Romans. Why is that? Um, of course, he's the recipient of First and Second Timothy, and uh, and so forth. Anyway, the the epistles where Timothy is a co-author are uh, a remarkable study, and here we have it. Um, it's also an epistle where Paul is not introduced as an apostle. He's introduced. There's no reference here in verse one to Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's just simply Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. And so, which are the epistles where Paul omits his apostolic authority? That is an interesting study. You'll find it's a short list. Um, so we'll deal with that. It's written to the local church at Philippi, not just random believers off the street, but a formulated local church, including saints, elders, and, and deacons, right? Or overseers and deacons to the saints at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons. So when we return to this, once the introduction is done and we, we go to the verse by verse exposition, we're going to spend some time on overseers, deacons, and saints. We're going to understand what does it take to be a lampstand? What's the difference between a Bible study and a church? What is a local church? And how is it structured with offices? 
offices and officers, okay? Uh, those that are vested with those offices. And so uh, Philippians 1.1 is a great place to do that, along with 1 Timothy 3 and Titus. And we have the, the requirements for the overseer that are uh, and the deacons that are stipulated there. Thirdly, written during an imprisonment. My argument is that it's written during the Ephesian and Ephesian imprisonment. There may have been two or three or more uh, imprisonments during the three years that he spent at Ephesus. Traditionally, though, it's written from Rome during the Roman imprisonment. Alternatively, people that realize that the Roman authorship has issues have suggested Caesarea as an alternative. That does resolve some of the difficulty, but not all. Uh, much more likely, in my conclusion, coming from Ephesus during the Acts 19 uh, portion of Paul's ministry, the three years that he spent there, leaves a lot of uh, time for various imprisonments, being thrown to lions, for example, and other things that are described in other passages. And so the dating of the epistle is dependent upon which imprisonment is understood. Uh, the reference to the praetorium and the reference to Caesar's household while some people put a ton of weight on those expressions and they, they really bank on those exception, on those expressions and feel that they're conclusive, uh, closer examination exposes the fact that they're not as conclusive as, uh, as the, the uh, Roman position tries to make it out to be. So Ephesus had a praetorium, just as Jerusalem had a praetorium, and just as Caesarea had a praetorium. Uh, does not demand Rome as the setting. Neither does Caesar's household demand Rome as a setting. Under point four, we took you through the history and background of Philippi. Fascinating history. A lot of stuff. I'm, I want to go right back to that again just because uh, that's uh, this is where the great battle took place. Two battles actually took place, back-to-back battles that sealed the fate for, the, uh, for Brutus and his faction, those that assassinated Julius Caesar. Um, they, uh, they didn't get away with it, and the Civil War ended on behalf of Octavius, on behalf of uh, Mark Anthony, and the victory that they had there at Philippi. Did some map work to see the geography on this, and this is important. I think it's useful for us, useful for us to see the times that he passes through. That first time he ever passed through Philippi on the second missionary journey, when they when they spent the night in jail and they got the jailer saved in the morning, and, and then they left town. That first time ever that they passed through Philippi, I think, has significance, and we see glimpses of that in the book of Philippians itself. Their memories of of Timothy, for example, are the memories of the Acts. 16 experience on that first time they passed through. Then on the uh, third missionary journey, he passed through two more times because uh, Paul did kind of a boomerang like that and then back around like that. Paul was going to go to Corinth and then sail across, but some kind of plot prevented him from doing that. We don't know all the details, but Acts 20 tells us about it. So instead, he loaded up all his students on the boat, and they went across, and Paul walked back around again to Philippi and then came across with Luke, and they all rendezvoused there in Troas. And so on that third missionary journey were at least two more visits to Philippi, possibly more, because there's that reference in Acts 20 about how he went through all those surrounding districts. Do you remember this? We talked about it during the uh, prison epistle preview, some of the... uh, Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions discussion. But in Acts 20, verses 1 and 2, it says, He left to go to Macedonia, and when he had gone through those districts, 
Philippi is only in one out of several Macedonian districts, but he went through all of those districts. And then it says he had given them much exhortation. Well, how much is much? (laughs) You know, if you preach four times, is that much? If you preach 20 times, is that much? How much is much? Well, we don't know, but it says much exhortation and through all those districts. And so that tells us then, and we, we know, by the way, because of Romans 6, uh, 16, that he actually made it all the way over here to Elycrium. But uh, as he's going through those districts, he possibly passed through Philippi three or four or five different times. We have no way to know that, right? But at least the recognition that he was in those regions becomes important for us when Paul will talk about uh, the fact that they lacked opportunity to support him for a, for a time. They lacked opportunity to provide funds. And, and you've got to reconcile that with the other statements and, and put them together in a coherent way. And that's what I uh, want to do here tonight. We've, we've done it already, but if he missed it, we'll, we'll reemphasize that again. So point six and seven. These two points are really the essence of this introduction. And I've spent the most amount of time on six and seven, probably more than the rest of it combined. Um, but I think the travel log is important in chapter two. I won't go back through it again. You've had it a couple times now. But that travel log is important because it keeps talking about trips back and forth. All right? And uh, the trips that Epaphroditus made, plus the news of his sickness. When, when the Philippians heard that Epaphroditus was sick, somebody had to make that trip back to Philippi to tell them, hey, Epaphroditus is sick. They didn't get it on Twitter. They didn't get it on Facebook. All right? They didn't get an email. Someone, it, it, news in the ancient world required feet, human feet, donkey feet, camel feet, some kind of feet, or uh, sailing, you know, a wind, wind power if, if, if a ship took the news. But even if a ship took the news, there were still feet that got on that ship and got off that ship, and there were still feet that carried, you know, human feet with human hands that carried a scroll that somebody read. They heard that Epaphroditus was sick. Someone made the journey from Ephesus to, to I believe, from Ephesus to, to Philippi. And then word comes back that they were concerned. And then that made Epaphroditus concerned. And so we have back and forth. We've got a total of seven back and forths, I think, in, in, uh, that are detailed there in uh, Philippians chapter 2, including intended trips that Paul is going to get Timothy on board to take and trips that Paul is going to take. Different uh, journeys there. And so the travelogue, I think, rules out Rome as a, as a possibility it becomes a much less likely possibility because of the distance and time involved to uh, to do that. Beyond the travel log, I think you can take the travel log as one piece of evidence, but then there's the grace giving on, on the other hand. And this too, I think, this gets overlooked by the commentaries, but I think it's vital. The grace giving. And so join me in Philippians 4. Let's look at this again. Because this part I've only taught once. <laughs> the travel log I've taught twice, so you should be good on that. But in Philippians 4, there's this perspective on money. And Paul is reflecting back, and he's reflecting back in a positive way. He's not insulting them here. But in Philippians 4, 15 through 19, we've got uh, a recounting of, of their ability to give and their ability to support. And he says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, now this is that, I put the map up earlier, that second missionary journey, when he first left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. 
So when, when Silas and Timothy show up with the funds from Macedonia, Luke just kind of left it ambiguous there in, in Acts uh, 18 that here the, the brethren come from Macedonia and they've got some funds with them. We think, well, maybe it was a combined effort of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Well, no, it turns out it was Philippi all by themselves. It was Philippi and Philippi alone that funded Paul's stay in uh, in Corinth, that let him leave the tent-making business with Priscilla and Aquila there in, in Acts 18. So you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And even in Thessalonica, in other words, before we left Macedonia for that first time, even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, he was only there three weeks. For them to send more than one gift is, in my thinking, extraordinary. For a brand new church that just barely got formed with the Philippian jailer and Lydia and Luke and whoever else was there. And so when they could, they gave. But then there came a time when they could not. And that's not their fault. God's in charge of their circumstances. They get tested in the ways they get tested, just like we get tested in the ways we get tested. So when we see in verse 17 here, and we see some other opportunities. Now, we've got to back up slightly. Let's back up earlier than verse 15, because I think there's a context here that goes back to verse 10. He says... Um, Philippians 4.10 here. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Now at last. And that's legitimate. And that's celebrating. He's not insulting them now. Okay? And I realize it's hard when you're reading a manuscript, you don't get the tone of voice. <laughs> you know, you don't hear the dripping sarcasm if there is supposed to be some. Here there's none. But if there's supposed to be some you know, then Paul might have a very snide remark saying, okay, finally, now at last, you've managed to scrape together a buck or two, okay? None of that tone belongs here. This is pure celebration. So I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity, you lacked opportunity. Now that's a little bit hard to explain if it comes after a context where Paul has been through there three or four or five times in the process of passing through all those Macedonian districts. Who funded all that travel? All right. Certainly wasn't Ephesus funding all that travel. Paul had to flee out of Ephesus. Um, anyway, you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And that contentment came in Ephesus. I know how to get along with humble means. That happened at Ephesus. Part of the rebuke, by the way, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, he writes to 1 Corinthians, he, he writes to the Corinthians, and he comments upon their wealth. They're already kings, they're already reigning, they're already wealthy, they have need of nothing. And Paul says, hey, we're poorly clothed, we're roughly treated. We, uh, we go hungry, we go thirsty in sleepless nights. He's writing that from Ephesus. The three years he spent there was rough. 
You wouldn't know it from reading Acts 19, but you, you certainly get a better picture of it with all these other details that we add to the mix. So he says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. When Philippi went through a season of thinness, they could not support Paul. And he was fine with that. All right? And so it's, it's, if you could think of it like our, our business meetings, right? We get an annual report and our treasurer files these things and it says, you know what? Um, we had a pretty thin year. We're going to be frugal on the budget. We're going to kind of adjust certain things. Uh, we're going to, we're going to have some, some greater caution with what we do in, in things, you know? Um, we, we tighten our belt. That's what we do. And then there's other years when, you know, $600,000 shows up in a mailbox. Um, that's a different kind of year. <laughs> okay. And Paul says that I've learned that how to live in hum, in humble means and also how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And this is the background for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and that's, a, that's a promise, but it's a promise in the, in the uh, context of operating under principles of contentment in whatever God supplies or chooses not to supply. If he's abundant or if he's frugal, whatever God chooses, we can do all things and we accept his grace. And then he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And so this is, uh, he's thankful. Now at last, finally, you're able to resume what you have done so well in the past. So they were able to give, and then there was a time when they could not, and then there was a time when they could once again, and boy, when they could once again, it was Katie bar the door, right? I mean, it was just, man, it is wide open, when they did, they did beyond their ability. It just, it came together in such an abundance thing, they sent a fortune to Jerusalem, as we understand it. So, as he teaches this now, now we can go down to verse 17. <coughs> he says, not that I seek the gift itself. The actual money that arrived, the check that came in the mail, or whatever it was, that thing, I mean, it's a good thing, all right, but what's behind that thing? The attitude behind that thing is what is the sweet-smelling savor before the Father's throne of grace. And that's what's going to last forever. The thing won't last forever. I don't care how big the gift is. It's a finite amount of human earthly currency. And it will be spent and it will be gone sooner or later at some point of time. But the sacrifice that goes up before the Father's throne of grace never goes away. That is an eternal blessing. So he says, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. <laughs> That's not human accounting procedures right there. That's not generally accepted accounting procedures, right? Because, uh, you know, you ask any CPA or you ask any accountant, and if, if you have an expenditure, whatever you've just spent, that has to be deducted from your balance. You don't, you don't spend 100 bucks and then add that to your balance. You know, if you do too much of that and your <laughs> your your register's not going to reconcile, not with what the bank tells you, okay? But when you're operating in God's economy, guess what? It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when you are the instrument in God's hand for the giving in this way, it's a love application and you are profiting 
from that love application. It is the profit which increases to your account, to the eternal account, to the spiritual account. It's a beautiful thing. So he says, I have received everything in full. It's like he's issuing the receipt here for what Epaphroditus brought. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma. It is a grace gift. It's all grace. All right? And that's why when you operate on a grace principle, you're not setting a dollar amount. You're not giving a minimum. You're not saying a percentage. It has to be a 10%. Okay? It has to be what the person wants. And then it's a glory to Jesus Christ. So what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so all of you with your Exodus questions tonight or your, your, uh, <laughs> your Leviticus questions tonight and, and all of that, this is language you're familiar with if you've been reading the Pentateuch lately. All right, the sweet-smelling savor. This is the language of sacrifice before the Father's throne of grace. And it's in that context then that we learn, my God will supply all your needs, needs singular, by the way. I know it says plural there in English. That's wrong. The noun in Greek is a singular noun. My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, <laughs> grace giving is not about your riches. It's about his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And we either reflect God's riches, we reflect God's grace, or we reflect something human. Legalism, pride, some other thing. Okay? And if you're operating on the grace basis, God will not, you won't suffer for that. God's not going to cause you to, to be hurt when you're responding to his grace. He will supply your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So there it is. And so we track this. Now, as we track this then, and we, we can take the simple passage, I think Philippians 4 is simple. I think it's straightforward. I think it's grace. I think it explains their attitude when they gave the season they couldn't give. And then when they could give once again, we have that pattern. And then we put it together with 2 Corinthians 8. We put it together with Romans 15. We put it together with this fund that they're sending to Jerusalem. Right? So second, uh, let me just grab 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5 here. And we should be well familiar with this because we, didn't we spend six years in 2 Corinthians? We spent a while in 2 Corinthians. And so 2 Corinthians 8, Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, and that affliction we're going to learn about in Philippians because he tells them they've got it coming, that, that uh, they've, they've seen it in him, they've heard it in him, and it's on the way to them. And they're going to go through their own affliction. And here he's describing it after the fact. In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. You know, when that dam finally broke, you, you think about it as their poverty was like a, a dam, right? It was like uh, stopped up, their grace giving was stopped up, their finances were stopped up. But then when that dam broke, it flooded out in a tremendous uh, overflow, the, the poverty, deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Grace giving is always volitional if it has any value. If it's grudgingly or under compulsion, there's no value to it. But they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. 
And this is pretty nice. The, the language here is great. You know, favor is a grace term. And here they, they, they're counting it their grace to give grace. It's a grace to them that they can supply grace to others. And this, not as we had expected. Why had they not expected? Well, they've been going through a season of thinness. Paul had tightened his belt. They had some affliction. They had some hunger in, in Ephesus. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They were able to resume the support for the Apostle Paul like we read about in Philippians 4. And so we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. And so that's what the rest of chapter 8 is about, chapter 9 is about, the reference to this in Romans 15. It is a tremendous fund. It is so large, in fact, they are assigning multiple escorts, multiple men that, that are put in charge of it to to safeguard and to uh, secure the deliverance of those funds to the famine relief to the saints in Jerusalem. Paul himself goes with them on this. He wasn't sure he would at first, but he eventually decided to do that. So putting those things together as well, putting those things together as well, and again looking at our maps realizing that on the second missionary journey, Philippi was sending gifts more than once to Thessalonica, sending gifts to Corinth, all right? Then uh, from Jerusalem and back around, when did the gifts stop? At what point were they not able to, to give those gifts anymore? And then when did the gifts resume? And was it uh, indeed that second missionary journey? Was it the third missionary journey? Well, I mean, I think as he's traveling through these districts, the opportunities were there again. And we know that as he was traveling through these districts, they were putting together a huge fund to send to Jerusalem. So my only conclusion is, is that this season he's talking about in Philippians had to have been in between the, the second missionary journey, had to have been at some point after he left Corinth, in here somewhere, or on the third missionary journey during the three years that he spent in Ephesus. And that's exactly what we've determined based upon the other studies that we've done. Again, I think it's conclusive. And it demonstrates that the, I think that the, the travel, the travelogue argues strongly for an Ephesus origin. I believe the, um, the, 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 the budgetary report proves it. Absolutely proves it. Because if if uh, otherwise, if it's if Paul has to wait till he gets to Rome, if Paul has to wait till his Roman imprisonment for the Philippians to finally start to send him another gift, then much of Philippians four is actually sarcastic and insulting. Now at last you revived your concern for me. Okay, you sent a bunch of money to Jerusalem for those people, but you 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 couldn't spare me a buck or two. Okay. Until now, finally, that I'm in Rome. Well, you know, are you feeling sorry for me? How does that work? Okay, so I think that if you, if you really want to insist on the the Roman imprisonment as the source of of this, then I think what you end up with is uh, a lot of sarcasm and a lot of sour grapes, and um, and uh, things that I don't believe are legitimate for Philippians chapter four. All right, so that's point seven. Finally, uh, point eight, 
there are inferences in the book itself that um, that Paul has only been there once when he writes this book to them, when he writes this epistle to them. And, and beyond these inferences too, think about the other letters that Paul wrote. Galatians was written shortly after the one and only time he'd been there on that on that first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas went to went to the Galatian region. They had some fruit. They got back to Antioch, and shortly thereafter, shortly after after having been there, Paul writes Galatians. And he says, "I'm amazed you're so quickly abandoning grace. I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting the the, the grace of God." So he wrote Galatians shortly after leaving in the Galatian region. Same thing with First and Second Thessalonians. He wrote First and Second Thessalonians shortly after from Corinth on the second missionary journey, shortly after leaving Thessalonica. We're starting to get a pattern here. Paul doesn't let a lot of time go by before he sends a letter back to a church that he had visited on a, on a recent missionary journey. He writes First Corinthians shortly after leaving Corinth. During that time, he was staying in, in Ephesus. So why would he wait 10 years to write to Philippi, his favorite church? <laughs> why would he wait 10 years? It doesn't make any sense. The inferences in Philippians 2, I think, speak to this. The natural reading of Philippians 1, verses 26 and 30. In Philippians 1, 26, he says um, in 30, that they had seen it, seen it and now here to be in it. All right. Did I decide that was a typo? Philippians 1.26? Oh, no, there it is. Okay. Philippians 1, 25 and 26. This is where he doesn't know whether he wants to live or die. But he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. All right. Now, by itself, that may not prove he's only been there once, but I think combined with the other uses, it does that I may come to you again. If he's only been there once, this has an added significance if he can see them a second time. Likewise, verse 30. Verse 29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, that happened when he was there the first time in Acts 16, but also to suffer for his sake. They've got some suffering coming up, and, and the book of Philippians warns them about it. So it's been granted to believe in him and also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And the, the verb tenses here and the language here speaks to a single visit. They saw when he was there in Acts 16, and now they hear. They, they haven't seen him since. But they now hear that he's got another imprisonment like, like he had in Philippi. So you saw it in me, now you hear it to be in me. I'm back in prison again. Chapter 2 and verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, that one time I was there in Acts 16, but now much more in my absence. Because I haven't been back since then. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Verse 22. Uh, hoping to send Timothy to you shortly. You know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. The Philippian memories of Timothy were Acts 16 and nothing since then. Nothing since then. Okay? You know, if if this is somebody that's been around and gone and back and gone and back and gone, they, they would have additional memories. They would have additional evidence. Okay? You know, and if I might get personal tonight or I might embarrass somebody tonight as he's preparing to go forth. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's neat. And we can talk about uh, childhood memories. First time I ever met Casey, I was 1990. I won't ask him how old he was. But his family took me to a picnic, and, and uh, we were over there off of 360 in Bull Creek. And, and uh, John and Priscilla, we were talking about Scripture and Ralph's message and different things there. I think it was from Philippians even, because Ralph was teaching Philippians back then. And uh, and all the kids were splashing around in the creek, you know, including a, a five-year-old little Casey, right? Splashing around in the creek. I don't know how old he was. But uh, they were all little. Jacob was little. Precious was little. Sean was never little, but he was younger than he is now. Now, if that's the only time I've ever been exposed to Casey, well, then those are the stories I'd have to tell, wouldn't they? I wouldn't know about his high school years. I wouldn't know about... When he came back after high school, I wouldn't know about um, other episodes of Casey's life. Okay, and uh, and then if I was going to reflect upon it and write a letter, say to uh, a church that that knows him or doesn't know him, what am I going to talk about? The most recent illustrations of his faithfulness, or something from four visits ago when he was just a little kid? Okay. I think the indication is here when he when it says in verse 22, you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. That's their one and only exposure to Timothy is the events of Acts 16 on that second missionary journey. Again, it is they are, these are all inferences. Each one is an individual inference. The combined total of all these inferences, I think, are uh, are telling. Chapter four, we were just there, verses 15 and 16. He talks about leaving the, that, that first time, uh, the, the first departure out of Macedonia, and even in Thessalonica. He's talking about that as if that's the only time he was ever there. And how they lacked the opportunity since then, until just now, until just recently. They were able to revive their concern and able to dispatch, as an apostle, they were able to dispatch Epaphroditus with some funds. So those inferences there. All of this leads me then to conclude under main point nine. My conclusion is that the book of Philippians was written from Ephesus during Paul's th- uh, three-year stay. That it was written after 1 Corinthians and it was written before 2 Corinthians. Because 2 Corinthians was written after he left Ephesus um, uh, upon his arrival again in Macedonia. So conclusion, written from Ephesus during Paul's three-year stay after 1 Corinthians and before 2 Corinthians. And especially after we went through all of those Lucan uh, omissions and Paul's admissions, we find so many links 
between Philippians and 2 Corinthians, I think it becomes undeniable. I wish I had known this when I taught 2 Corinthians. <laughs> All right? I regret that I had not done the study on the prison epistles prior to teaching 2 Corinthians. Because guess what? Colossians, Philemon, they're all under Paul's belt when he, uh, when he writes 2 Corinthians and when he writes Romans. All right? Ephesus is a different matter. Ephesians, I think, I don't, I'm not ready to say out loud tonight. I think likely it was also um, in that same time frame, but possibly could have been Caesarea, possibly could have been elsewhere. But the same courier, Tychicus was the same courier, okay? But Timothy was not a co-author of of Ephesians, like he was a co-author on uh, Colossians and Philemon. So we'll talk about that in a couple years when we get to the book of Ephesians. So now, do you care? (laughs) Is it any skin off your nose if Philippians is written from Rome or Caesarea or Ephesus? You're sitting out there thinking, Pastor Bob, who cares, right? Big deal. Does it really impact anything? Okay. Yes and no. I'll be honest. You know, the, the verses are still the verses, the chapters are still the chapters, the doctrines in Philippians are still the same doctrines in Philippians, wherever they were sent from. We still have the dominant themes of the book we would have otherwise, all right? But where I do think the connection does make a difference is exactly what we've been studying now since January. We were seeing that connection between the Macedonian churches, the Greek churches, the Ephesian church, or the Asia Minor churches, the Galatian churches, and how all of them come together to support these missionary endeavors, the funds that they send to Jerusalem. All right? Becomes a big tie here in the first century. And I think it, it shows us as a pattern. How do we connect to Lost Pines Bible Church and Corpus Christi Bible Church and, and, and wherever else, Gulf Coast Bible Church? And then, and you have, are we, are we a denomination or are we a hierarchy? How does this operate? How does this work? Can we cooperate together financially and in missionary endeavors and in other things? I think that the the full synchronization of the Pauline uh, epistles does this for us. It, It teaches us this when we put it properly in its context. All right. Now, uh, we got just five minutes left. Let me give you a couple of dominant themes and, uh, we'll expand upon these on Sunday. Um, have you ever studied Philippians before? You ever been under a pastor's teaching on Philippians before? Do you even know what Philippians is about? Have you read it lately? What, what, when you think Philippians, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's that? I didn't hear you. See, all the all acoustics are designed to go that way in this room. It's pathetic. Plus, I'm deaf. How about rejoice? The dominant theme of, of Philippians is rejoice. You pick up a hundred commentaries on Philippians, and uh, ninety-nine of them are going to tell. Well, a hundred of them are going to tell you that the main theme of Philippians is rejoicing in suffering. Okay, it's all about rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice, 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 rejoice. So we'll talk about that. Um, the theme, the dominant theme of Philippians is rejoice. That's an order. Okay, it's not a hint. It's not a suggestion. It's not optional. It's not a good thing to do. It is an order. Rejoice. Okay? He has no trouble repeating it over and over again. He even says, hey, I don't mind saying this again. It's uh, no, it's not difficult for me, and it's a safeguard for you. 
And so if you want to talk about the verb Cairo or the, the noun kara, or you want to combine them together, they appear 14 times in this book. They appear in chapter 1, verses 4, 18, and 25, twice in verse 18. They appear in chapter 2, verse 2, 17, 18, 28, 29. They appear in chapter 3, chapter 3 and verse 1. They appear in chapter 4, verse 1, verse 4, verse 10. And that's twice that it shows up in verse 4. 14 times in this book, in fact, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, that's all there is. <laughs> every verse, every I mean not every verse, every chapter, we've got joy and rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing. So we'll show you some charts, we'll show you those verses, we'll show you the impact of that. But there's another dominant theme, and this is what I want you to think about in the coming days. Because the other dominant theme is think. Think. That also is not a suggestion or a hint or a good idea. It is a command. And it is the command that you have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the imperative of chapter 2 to think, to cycle the doctrine related to kenosis and apply it. Phreneo is a thinking verb. Phreneo is a thinking verb. The frame is the mind. If you're schizophrenic, that means your frame, your mind, has been schizoed. It has been severed or divided. You don't want to have a divided mind. You want to have a uh, sound mind. You want to have the mind that Christ had. You want to have, it, it, I know it says attitude, but it's going to be mind. It's going to be thinking. All right? Have you ever made up your mind? Of course you have. We all have. We make up your mind to do something. Or if you are of a mind to do something, if you've made up your mind or you're of a mind, sometimes we say I've got half a mind and that's, that's a different idiom, kind of a silly expression, honestly. But if you have your mind made, it's like a mindset. How long do you have to have your mind set on something to where you can say, I have a mindset? I'm in a grace mindset. I'm in a, I'm in a uh, love mindset. I'm in a giving mindset. I'm in a witnessing mindset. What kind of mindset are you in right now? You're supposed to have the mindset Jesus had. And so this requires thinking. And, and you are responsible. I am responsible. Every one of us is responsible for what we think and how we think. And if we're thinking the wrong way, God's going to deal with us. And this book is all about how to think. And uh, if you're thinking the right way, then the rejoicing is going to happen. Uh, but these are both orders. And so we'll deal with these dominant themes. And this will conclude the introduction. Once we go through 10 and 11, we go through those verses and we stress this. It'll be of Sunday, I'm sure. Maybe Sunday and Wednesday. I don't know how long it'll take. But we get through 10 and 11, then we will have finished this introduction and we'll go back to Philippians 1.1. We'll introduce Paul and Timothy. And uh, we'll talk about the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. And we'll be ready for everything else that follows then in, uh, in chapter 1. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We call upon your continued faithfulness, Father, as we dwell on these things, as we let our mind dwell on these things. We are accountable for how we think. And Father, I pray that this book will have a tremendous value for each one of us individually, but for all of us collectively, for this flock, Father, to be Christ-like in our thinking, in uh, the rejoicing that we're called to do. 
And then whatever else happens, Father, in our finances and our circumstances, with abundance or with lack, whatever it is, Father, we will be content because we're thinking right and we're rejoicing right. And uh, I'm just excited to think of what this book is going to do for the uh, saints and the overseers and the deacons of Austin Bible Church. So I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.